Today's first episode of the recap, weekly recap of the New South Wales state election on Socially Democratic is proudly presented to you by Dunn Street. Dunn Street is a progressive campaign agency that specialises in campaigning and community organising. We work with non-profit and community-based organisations, trade unions, progressive businesses and social democratic parties across the globe. Dunn Street develops community engagement and organising strategies to win campaigns both big and small. Dunn Street trains engagement staff, volunteers and organisers in leadership and power building and we help leaders craft their own public narrative to tell a story that unites people and move them to act together. And if you want to create change in your community, then hit us up at dunstreet.com.au. Today's episode is also brought to you by Morris Blackburn Lawyers. Have you been in a road accident? Whether you're a driver, rider, passenger or pedestrian, uh, you may be able to claim compensation through your superannuation. Uh, whatever you're facing, Morris Blackburn Lawyers have the experience that you can count on and they'll support you through all these complex um, matters uh, and get you through to the other side. Just find out more by visiting morrisblackburn.com.au. And finally, today's episode is brought to you by SwiftFox. Every moment on your campaign matters. You need the tools that you can trust, lists that are up to date, phone banks that can change minds, emails that drive donations, events that will energise the community online and offline, and text blasts that distill your message perfectly. SwiftFox CRM is made for campaigners by campaigners. And to find out more, go to swiftfoxcrm.com to win your next campaign. Hello and welcome to another episode of Socially Democratic, your weekly centre-left politics and organising podcast out every Friday that dives into the progressive campaigns and issues of the day and people leading them from home and abroad. And we're kicking off our first of four weekly recaps of the New South Wales state election. It is like 17 days till New South Wales goes to the polls, which is on the 25th of March. And to help me break down every week of this campaign, we're going to be joined by two wonderful people, uh, Michael Buckland, who is the CEO of the McKell Institute, uh, and Rosie Ryan, uh, who is the lead organiser for the CPSU, which is the Community Public Sector Union. Unfortunately for today's episode, poor old Ro Rosie uh, has come down with a bit of a bug and uh, won't be on our show today. So Michael's going to step in and do most of the heavy lifting, but Rosie will be joining us next week for our second episode. So we look forward to... Um, uh, seeing and hearing from Rosie, and we wish Rosie the best in getting back on her feet. Um, so for today's episode, it's just going to be myself and Michael. But each week over the course of these next four episodes, we're going to unpack the New South Wales state election. We're going to be covering what the leaders are up to, the policy announcements are going to be happening, the ads that are going to get dropped, the, the moments in the campaign, the strategies, how it's all working, and also how the media are covering, covering the, uh, the election campaign as well. I love these episodes and I know you guys out there love these episodes as well because they are our most listened to episodes. Uh, obviously, we did this for the federal campaign. We did this for the Victorian state election campaign last year. And obviously, we're going to do it for the New South Wales state election. And hopefully, we can drive, bring home a uh, Labor victory on the 25th of March uh, uh, later this month. So we hope you enjoy these episodes. If you do, please... Be sure to give us five stars on Apple Podcast uh, when you're done listening to the episode today or leave us a review on Apple Podcast or Podchaser. And for all the updates, follow Dunn Street on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram and uh, LinkedIn and YouTube. Okay, let's get to today's first episode. We are taping this one on a Thursday lunchtime on the land of the Wurundjeri people and welcome to our first of four New South Wales State Election weekly recap episodes. 
as we get closer and closer to the state election on the 25th of March. Um, and joining me to unpack this most recent week and almost sort of set the scene for our listeners who are not only just in New South Wales but across the country and indeed across the world. Uh, I'm joined by the CEO of the McCall Institute, Michael Buckland. Welcome to so, welcome back, I should say, to Socially Democratic. Thanks for having me. I'm very excited. We're only we're only a couple of weeks out from the state election now. It's fast approaching. 17 days to go as we're recording this. Um, 16 when uh, I guess folks start to listen to this. Um, now you uh, will be joined each week by uh, Rosie Ryan from the CPSU, the Community Public Sector Union. Unfortunately, Rosie this morning. Uh, is a bit under the weather, it's a bit crook, so um, she's um, recovering at home. We wish her well, uh, and we look forward to Rosie joining us uh, in next week's episode. Um, but you're going to have to do all the heavy lifting today, Michael. Um, are you ready? I am ready. Throw it at me. Very good. <laughs> the very first question I wanted to ask you, actually, and I didn't want to frame it in such a negative light because I'm a very glass half full kind of person, but I was kind of thinking about that setting the scene where New South Wales Labor are heading into this election campaign and the feeling amongst uh, not just, you know, members of the caucus, but, you know, rank and file members, um, members of the trade union movement going into this campaign and and the the sense of urgency. Obviously, Labor's been out of government in New South Wales now for a number of years. Um, If Labor were to lose this election, it would be the fourth election loss in a row and that would see the coalition by the time they go to the polls again in 2027, that would be 16 years of coalition rule in New South Wales, which growing up, that would have been unheard of in my mind. We always looked at New South Wales as the jewel and the crown of the Labor Party. Heading to this campaign, um, how does it compare to previous elections? Do folks feel like there's a lot at stake here for New South Wales Labor or are people just more focused on let's just play the election that's in front of us? Um, and uh, let's not worry about what the past has meant and how that impacts on the future. Well, well it's interesting. I was talking to a journalist just the other day who said he seen, whenever he talks to Labor people, he's realised that uh, that they're allergic to optimism, um, and I think that's probably the right turn of phrase uh, for how everyone's feeling. Um, Labor did take a long time after, two th- after losing in 2011 to regain that self-belief, I think, and... Uh, that's extended to a lot of people in the the labour movement um, or progressive politics in general in in New South Wales. So I think there's certainly an apprehension, but um, there's also a feeling now that maybe we've maybe we've done enough to to warrant a change. Um, I think that the there isn't a easy uh, a one size because there was so much uh, hope in 2019. Uh, to win at the last election, um, but it just didn't go ahead, uh, and that was the famous loss to Gladys Berejiklian, um, who won over Michael Daly, and uh, and so really, it's sort of apprehension. I think is probably the best way to describe um, the feeling at the moment. Interesting. Do you think that there is a vibe in the electorate that this is a change election? Yeah, and I think that. Both sides are interestingly trying to capitalise on that that environment. Um, I think Dominic Perrottet, uh, the the Liberal Premier of New South Wales, is pushing um, to be the candidate for change, even after his own party's been in for so long. Um, and meanwhile, Minns, 
uh, who with Labor behind him is representing change sort of almost naturally as a change of government, um, is trying to uh, capitalise on some of those really long-standing uh, things in New South Wales like um, the commitment the government's had of private towards privatisation over the last 12 years. Um, uh, so, so really trying to and to offshoring rail projects and things like that. So, um, you know, Minns is also doing the doing the same thing. So, yes, it's definitely a change election. The question is that um, who's going to win that is 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 uh, a challenge. It's an, I mean, it's an interesting insight that you said there about um, both candidates or both parties uh, trying to frame it as such. And I think that uh, that speaks to the, the, the level, I won't say arrogance, but interesting that Perrottet is coming into this campaign saying, it's a change election. Here's an opportunity for you to, I've only been in the job 20 minutes, give me a mandate to enable me to do the things that I want to do for New South Wales. Do you think voters are going to buy that? Um. I, I think that some will. He is leaning on the, um, the the record of the government only really in terms of economic management and um, and uh, and infrastructure uh, building, both of which, uh, based on recent polls, aren't really resonating. People kind of don't like to give credit for past past goods. They want to know what you're going to do in the future. And so when the, uh, the, the Crime Commission in New South Wales put forward a report about um, uh, gambling and, and um, the use of it for uh, organised crime to, to um, wash their money, uh, Perrottet used that to say, look, I've just found something, it's new, and this is now my agenda for the next period of time. Um, there was a, a freshwater poll in the papers um, last week that found that the, uh, I mean, pokies is not the major issue in the New South Wales election, despite how much it's being talked about. People aren't really caring about it so much. But for Perrottet, it's not about the, the issue. It's about what it says about him as a leader and about whether he is a leader that wants, wants change and cares and, and is willing to take on vested interests. And so he's doing it for that, that purposes. Um, Chris is is got a different challenge because he's trying to he does represent change naturally as a change of government, but also because he's uh, he's bringing some big positions on domestic manufacturing and domestic procurement of government projects, um, following actually some some work that's been done in Victoria where you've you've done a lot of made in Victoria uh, things uh, with Dan Andrews, and uh, but his challenge is that now he needs to reassure people that that change isn't going to be too much, that they can handle that change. And so it's sort of, um, it's interesting watching the reformist candidate uh, take on a reassuring tone uh, and the the conservative candidate taking on a, a more ambitious tone. And so it's sort of, uh, I guess, probably a more unique election in that sense than we've seen in a while. Let's talk about, I, I was going to ask you about the policy, and I think we will in a moment, but let's talk about the candidates themselves. What do you see the strengths of uh, Chris's leadership heading into this critically important election campaign? Well, I, th- I think Chris as a level head but passionate advocate is also is his biggest strength. And you look at it in the same way that um, Anthony Albanese had to bring his um, he brought his passion and what he cared about to the election and, and embedded in the policies. But he also spent a lot of the campaign talk, 
trying to reassure voters that this is change that's manageable, that we can we can do this, and that it's not going to um, lit, uh, upend their lives. Uh, and so Chris, to be honest, has has probably done the best of many of the leaders that have led Labor in this in this challenging period for the last twelve years, in really establishing. Um, establishing himself and what he will be different and what he'll be the same. And the best example of that is when Chris first took over as, as Labor leader, he, he made the point where he stopped criticising Gladys uh, Berejiklian. He made the point that if I was sitting, uh, as he said it, if I was sitting uh, and getting the same advice from the New South Wales Chief Health Officer, Kerry Chant, would I be doing anything differently? And most of the time, he said he probably wouldn't, and so he he didn't uh, didn't pursue her on that, which maybe meant that he forgot forwent a few uh, a few uh, media hits, but it also meant that he uh, it, it I think sent a signal to people about the kind of person he was, the kind of change he wanted was deliberate, not uh, universal, and that contrasted very strongly with, for instance, what. Um, the opposition did in Victoria, where they hounded uh, Dan Andrews and um, he really wasn't given any clean air, but at the same time it, it made the opposition look like they had nothing constructive to say that they and that they would have done things so fundamentally different. And for people who were scared of the virus, I actually don't think they wanted that much different and it shows in the results, not just in Victoria, but also in Queensland, where the election was almost exclusively run on a on a, you know, almost a mid-COVID campaign on uh, re-electing the government based on their handling of COVID. It feels like Chris did take, um, he had some uh, key learnings from watching the way that uh, Peter Malinowskis behaved when he was opposition leader in South Australia. Um, Peter, right from the get-go, was very much um, supportive um, as far as he could take it of the government in their approach to dealing with COVID. Um, whereas, as to the point you made, what was going on across the border in Victoria, you know, both um, Michael O'Brien and Matthew Guy were going so antagonistic in their approach with their response to COVID that they were aligning themselves up with basically cookers uh, by the end of it, you know, and they end up running ads on it that was just sort of like, what are you doing here? Um, and, uh, and Chris seems to have taken a leaf out of that approach to your point as well, which I think is super, super powerful. Um, how does that then set him up going into this campaign. So voters have gone, okay, well, so this guy's different. He's, he's, he's not necessarily just partisan for the sake of partisanship in, politi- in politics. Um, how does that enable him to then have a, a more nuanced conversation about the challenges that New South Wales people are facing heading into this poll? What well, means this is probably the first election uh, in Australia in which COVID really isn't, and the, and the management of the COVID pandemic isn't the 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 sort of central theme of the campaign. Um, when when I look to the recent federal election, um, there was still a lot about the vaccine rollout and about the handling of the uh, you know going to Hawaii and and all the the other uh, sort of ways crises were handled under the former government. And so, um, really, I think this is the first time that's happening. And it's happening also because I talked a little bit earlier about the the switch maybe between. Uh, each uh, the, the Labor Party and the, the Liberal Party each taking on some positions that we thought were a bit odd um, for their uh, or unexpected, I should say. But um, P- 
Perrottet was also leading the charge when he was um, treasurer to reopen. He did say, we need to start getting used to the virus. We need to reopen. And, I mean, he pulled forward the reopening date that was set under Gladys Berejiklian when he became Premier. He, he brought forward the date by just a matter of weeks. And to be honest, a lot of people felt like that was right. I know we all had fatigue from the lockdowns. Uh, we In New South Wales, it wasn't quite as, as tough on us as, as in Victoria. Well, not everywhere, but certainly some communities were in lockdown stronger than others here in, in Sydney at, at any rate. But um, what that did is it, it actually meant that Perrottet wasn't the one who was saying, I'm a continuation of the legacy of Gladys, which you all appreciated during COVID. And Chris was. So Chris representing another party was saying, hold on, I'm, I back what Gladys was doing. And Perrottet saying, oh, I'm going to change what Gladys is doing. And so what that meant was, I think that neither party is really making this an election campaign on COVID because the government doesn't really own the legacy in the way that some others do and the opposition isn't challenging the legacy in the way that some oppositions do. So I think that's how it's sort of influencing the campaign at the moment. So what do, to that point then, what do, what does Labor want to make this election campaign about in terms of, and what are we seeing from the party in terms of policy announcements and trying to frame up their, their positives and their strong points or as a, or contrasting it with the Conservatives? There's two things I'd say. One is the the general theme is around the age of the government. Twelve years, um, what we need to have a change of priorities, and that's being manifest in a lot of small. Well, they're small splashes in media terms, but some of them are quite big policy that you know Mikel at any rate has been pushing quite heavily, and but fundamentally it's about health and education. So unlike in some of the other states, health and education aren't necessarily seen as... They are seen as potentially in crisis, but they aren't necessarily seen as a um, as that that's the fault of the government. But we have seen in New South Wales, and I'll give you the two points, one on health and one on education. Um, our health system is stretched. Our uh, nurses and other health workers are sometimes are paid less than interstate counterparts, despite living in more expensive cities on the most part. Um, we, uh, the emergency, uh, sorry, the elective surgery waiting list um, has shot up enormously. Now, a lot of this is due to COVID and it's not necessarily the government's fault and they're not blaming the government, but they want a solution. Mm. And so they want someone to put forward a solution. So um, Chris Minns's uh, announcement uh, around increasing the number of paramedics, um, in, uh, his recruitment and retention announcement with uh, paying hex for nurses and other health workers who are who come to uh, New South Wales and work in the public system. Um, these are all designed to address that. And then if I went back to education, New South Wales education um, uh, rankings in the international PISA tests um, were the highest in the world, uh, in, in Australia, behind the ACT in the early 2000s. And since then, the um, the since then they've fallen more than any other state, and it now ranks um, towards the bottom. And so, education has become a major issue, and and it's exacerbated more recently by shortages of teachers. Um, what Labor has said, and we're really proud of this announcement because it came after we we wrote a report on setting the standard, um, advocating for fully funding the schooling resource standard. Now this is 
maybe getting a bit into the weeds, but I hope your your audience will listen because I care about this a lot. When Gonski set how our education system is funded, he set a standard. It's called the schooling resource standard. And it's the amount of money a school should receive to be able to ensure that about 80% of its students will will be at the national minimum proficiency standard in literacy and numeracy. And every state signed up and said, this is a great thing, we're going to do it. We all heard about Gonski campaigns. But we've never fully funded that standard for public schools. The only state that has is the ACT. And interestingly, the ACT has the highest scores. New South Wales has seen the biggest decline, so it's it's in more need than any other state to address it. And so what Labor's said is that they're committed to getting to 100%. Um, Right now, um, the states fund uh, the bulk of it and the the Commonwealth funds a small amount and it's reversed for private schools. And uh, here we are, they're going to say we're getting to 100%, that they're going to try and get the feds to put in a little bit more money, but either way, they're going to get to 100%. So we're excited about that. It's not controversial, so you're not going to hear about it a lot in the campaign, but for the people who have their kids in schools and who are worried about the the education of their children, it's going to matter a lot. So what Labor's doing is putting out these policies that maybe aren't the controversial ones that they've... that. Um, have been done elsewhere to create a point of difference, but they're sensible and they're addressing a problem that New South Wales has. And for them, it's about saying we're ready after 12 years of Liberal national government. Where are the Liberals focusing their attention when it comes to policy announcements to create that contrast with uh, with Labor? Well, I think to a degree they're ho- they were hoping that Labor would... Um, run a a more controversial campaign than they did so they could focus on Labor's announcement. Um, That's certainly what happened in in 2019. But the first uh, point to make is that the the coalition have been very big on on pokies for the first half of the campaign. And like I said, this isn't necessary. So what what this is is saying they want a mandatory trial for all poker machines. They've announced that... um, a trial of cashless gaming. So this is where you you have to set a pre-limit and you have to use a card and so it's to stop losses on, on gambling machines. The trial's not going to be fully implemented, I think, until 2027 or something. So it's it sort of does have a little bit of hairs on it from a policy purist point of view. Um, but it was more about the message it sent about Perite being new and fresh and having a new new agenda and a new idea. So to be honest, he wasn't it wasn't about um, about him, uh, about the policy itself. Um, but that was really the key focus. It hasn't gained traction as of about mid-February. Um, the government really pivoted towards their more traditional um, elements. So that they've done a, uh, they've announced two areas that they've worked in. The first is in infrastructure. And so they've announced uh, for potentially up to four new rail lines in Western Sydney Um so they put money for business cases for these rail lines uh, and um, and then sort of accused Labor of cancelling projects. So Labor said that it's not going to do some of the government's priorities and it's going to put that money into Western Sydney um, because there is a challenge with whether um, at the height of the building boom across the east coast of Australia we can afford the amount of infrastructure that's being promised. Um, and the second thing that they've prom- that they've been focusing over the last couple of weeks has been uh, their economic record, um, and that really comes to a 
well, what, what amounts to a scare campaign about the wages cap. So in New South Wales, we have uh, the government has capped public sector wages at 2.5%. They've temporarily gone up to 3% because of inflation. Um, but it means it's one of the reasons why public sector wages are actually increasing at a slower rate than private sector wages um, and goes to a little bit of the problems that I've just said about um, nurses and teachers and other healthcare workers and um, public servants going to other states because it is a very, certainly Sydney is a very expensive city to live in. And so um, that has been a, a key point for them, um, which has been around what are they, um, how can they deliver, uh, what will happen if, that, if Labor gets rid of the cap, which is what they've said they'll do. So if Labor gets rid of the, the public sector wages cap, the accusation is the New South Wales budget will blow out by billions of dollars. Um, uh, I, I, I disagree, uh, but that's a um, but that's a certainly a point of contention. Um, perhaps the one other thing that is is worthwhile mentioning is that cost of living is always rated and in every poll as the number one issue, um, and it's slightly less political than um, it seems more practical in policy terms. And the government have an, um, a couple things that are working against them in this space that they're trying to neutralise. The first is that they've built a lot of toll roads. And so the accusation is they've essentially funded their infrastructure program, which everyone likes, but they've funded it off the back of increasing expenses for um, people commuting to work and, and are using those roads. The second thing is privatisation. Privatisation was a big part of the election campaign in 2015, when Mike Baird took to the election, I'm going to privatise the electricity network. And he did. And it gave a lot of money to the government. But that's not the only thing that's been privatised over the last 12 years. We've also had the land titles office, the ports, and so on. And they've each been relatively controversial. The ports, there were some special provisions that have been criticised by the ACCC, which stopped ports competing with each other. Um, and since then, prices for containers have increased by something like 40%. Now, that flows on to all of our goods. You throw in um, privatisation of the land titles office. Uh, housing, already a very expensive thing, has um, uh, the costs, the fees associated with that have increased by something like 40%. Um, so we have these huge increases in fees from assets that have been recently privatised. And it feeds into that. So what the government is doing is trying to neutralise that by announcing lots of measures um, uh, that will, uh, you know, basically small cash handouts. So we see this with a couple hundred dollars uh, in an electricity rebate. So they're not structural things that change, but for people that are hurting right now, it's quite appealing. It's interesting you uh, raised that issue of the cost of living because I think historically, you know, we as Labor people would have always thought that if the number one issue in going to, into a uh, election campaign was the cost of living, that would normally be a, the, the favourables would be skewing towards uh, the Liberal Party as opposed to Labor. And then what we learned, I guess, from the Albanese-Morrison election in May last year was that the cost of living turned out to be a positive for Labor and a negative for the Conservatives going to the Victorian state election in November as well, cost of living was highly rated amongst in the, in the research and also Labor worked hard, I think, to assure voters that your vote would be safe with the Labor Party in addressing the concerns that you have in terms of your home budgets. Um, 
And listening to what you're talking about there about how uh, the conservatives have done a lot of structural things that you could make an argument that has led to prices going up. Also not wanting to raise wages, which helps deal with people trying to pay for things that are getting more expensive. And also this argument that's starting to come about, certainly in, I guess the, the in, amongst the the commentary, the economic commentary saying, well, this the inflation that we're seeing right now is not wages driven. It's coming from other parts of the economy. So there is an argument that, well, we shouldn't make workers have to bear the brunt of this. So there is an argument to be made that we can lift wages. And I think you were starting to go to that point before when you said, I don't agree with this cap. Um, is With two weeks to go, is there an opportunity here for Labor to really wedge the Conservatives on this particular issue and drive this home? Because I just feel like this is a, this is a hip pocket issue that when voters go into those polls and go vote, in the back of their minds, they're thinking, who is best to address the stresses that I and my family or my, whether you've got a family or not, uh, best to, to deal with the stress that I'm feeling right now? I think it's a pretty even game at the moment, and that's certainly that's what I've seen in the, the polls so far. Um, Privatisation, though, is becoming an increasing issue in this election campaign, and so that'll be something that Labor pushes uh, going forward. The um, While the Coalition will, I think, co- uh, focus on on those sort of more straight-up hip-pocket um, items. Uh, I think we are, we noticed during the federal campaign it was kind of a big uh, inflection point when Anthony Albanese got up with the $1 and said, this is what the government are, are opposing. And it's almost a similar point when um, we talk about public sector wages. But the difference is that the government has to pay for them. And so I don't think you will see... I, th- I think Labor will... I think everyone accepts that public servants are going to need to be paid more. And we see that in the the Sydney Morning Herald did a big splash uh, that showed um, through their resolve um, poll that most people want public our nurses, teachers and doctors to earn a little bit more and keep up with the cost of living. Um, But I think Labor will be careful about that. Uh, their, Their policy is that people should be allowed to negotiate so it's a structural change. It's not a we're going to promise that their rates will increase to this or that. It's just a it's a principled mm-hmm. point that um, uh, workers should be allowed to negotiate for their wages. Uh, whether that's higher or lower is sort of almost almost secondary to that um, more basic principle. Um, so while I do think that it's working in Labor's favour, I think Labor won't make a big deal out of it because uh, fundamentally, if they want to start promising a larger wage for a particular group that they've got to pay for that and then they've got to explain that and it starts getting into more detail. I think that they're going to, going to leave it as... Um, and, and that's not bad for them. I think at the moment people, people do believe Labor cares more about wages and, that they'll, and they know, they trust Labor to be able to do more to keep their wages higher. Let's take a quick break to talk about SwiftFox. Every moment on a campaign matters. You need the tools that you can trust. Lists that are up to date, absolutely. Phone banks uh, that can change minds. Emails that drive donations and events that will energize the community online and offline. And text blasts that distill your message perfectly. SwiftFox CRM is made for campaigners by campaigners. And to find out more, go to swiftfoxcrm.com to win your next campaign. Okay, let's get back to the show. Let's uh, talk about – actually, and one more question about Dominic Perrottet, and I, I'm interested in this because I know that when he first became leader, 
uh, of the state, there was, you know, assumptions made about him and his leadership that went to sort of a lot of those Catholic tropes. He's got, you know, 50 kids. Uh, he's in Opus Day. He wears a salise. He only speaks Latin at home. I'm being sarcastic here. I'm playing it up a bit. Um, but, you know, th- these Catholic tropes about him and therefore he's going to be a terrible, terrible premier. He's going to be so right wing. It's, you know, um, this is, this is going to be great for, he's going to be so out of touch with ordinary New South Wales people. Um, do you think that in the time that he has been leader, he maybe has heard that and is trying to overcorrect or not overcorrect, but correct that assumption? Because there are some things that I'm seeing that, like there's there's a lot of stuff that's coming out of him that you could almost say would be social justice type Labor Party policies, and I'm just interested to get your take on that. And how's that playing out amongst our side? Looking at him, going, "Ah, oh, I see, I see, I see you, Dominic. I see what you're doing here." Well, well interestingly, as I, I think there's many Catholics who do see their faith as fundamental to social, ju- fundamentally about social justice, and so I think that um, uh, it's more of a distinction probably between um, people being turned off from uh, institutionalised religion in general and and therefore, and a lot of progressives fall in that category. Um, yeah, it was a it was a big push and, and Perrottet to a degree had become leader of a certain group within the Liberal Party, this is before he was Premier, um, that did uh, perhaps represent it, um, represent the more conservative views or, or um, that you might associate with that faith. Um, but I don't think it's. Um, I don't think he. I don't think that is him. Is what I'm trying to say. I don't think he's hiding who he is. I think um, while he has some of those beliefs, I think that um, you know those many of those beliefs are relatively mainstream. Um, you know, I, I talk about things like uh, um, you know euthanasia and so on, which is controversial in New South Wales amongst people from different sides of politics. So I don't think that. Um, I don't think it's fair, I guess, to paint him in that that category. I also think he does separate it from his um, his personal life from his work life, uh, and I think people have sort of slowly started to realise it. But at the same time, I don't think he was when he first took over was attuned to just how people were going to read into um, his actions. So, for instance, I take far more. I, I, I make it, it. It was far more significant to me that one of the first things he did when he became premier was he got a whole lot of the senior Liberal ministers and they went to a pub and talked about how they're going to bring forward the opening date so this pub can reopen. And all those ministers were men and a pub in a blokey atmosphere. Do you know what I mean? Like it wasn't... I remember it. Yeah, and so, you know, it wasn't let's go reopen so that you can visit your grandma who, who might only have some time left or so that you can reconnect with loved ones it was let's go to the pub and have a do you know what I mean and I think that that was just he he wasn't um at that point attuned to I think he was trying to be a knockabout bloke and um and and not that and it's also interesting from my point of view you know he has a lot of kids that would have been seen as such a positive just 10 or 15 years ago I think for a politician and it's amazing how far it's come so I don't, I don't think it's become a major point. Labor's been very careful. They know, I mean, there's a political reason for this as well as, an, uh, as a philosophical one, political reason being that there are plenty of people 
who have faith, um, who are open to voting Labor and are sometimes progressive, they don't want to see someone attacked by their faith. Um, and then there's a philosophical point of view where, you know, um, I think uh, Prue Carr, the deputy leader in New South Wales, wrote a, an article um, right after uh, the criticism of Perrottet saying, there are lots of things wrong with Perrottet, but his faith isn't one of them. Mm. And, and I think that sort of sent the, set the tone from then on. So I haven't seen it be a big thing. I think people do find some of it a bit odd, but I don't think it's becoming a huge thing. I think it's that, I think those early days were just wrong. Uh, he just handled himself wrong in the early days. I think he's come to try and change that. Uh, one more question before I want to flip to some conversations more, less on policy and more on um, campaigning. Uh, I guess this isn't policy, but it, the the other thing that we all know about Dominic is that obviously when he was at his 21st birthday, he dressed as a Nazi. Um, and it appeared to me that he got out in front of that before it got out of, you know, before, before it hit the media before without him actually trying to address it. He obviously knew this was coming and therefore he tried to get in front of it, which, you know, sometimes leaders make the mistake of thinking, I'm, uh, you know, like Matthew Guy makes this problem all the time. He runs from the problem. And I think sometimes strong leaders actually go, you know what, stuff it. I'm going to wear it, but I'm going to do it on my terms. Um, can, can I get a sense from you? Because I heard a rumour about how this came about to be leaked. And this speaks to the internals within the Liberal Party about, uh, you know, some rifts and divisions. Um, yeah, I think I think that's, it's fundamentally one of the biggest problems that, that he's he's got is like, I, I think Perrottet is fundamentally an asset for his side. He's, it's the asset at the moment. But the, the coalition is um, not making his job very easy. His, his colleagues are not, not helping him as much as they should be. Um, but but uh, it, it, I cut you off a little bit there, so sorry about that. But no, I, I, I just wanted to say that Perrottet did... Um, Firstly, uh, it, it was interesting. I've debated for a long time pe- with different people about this, um, uh, the, whether the Nazi uniform was almost the, the um, Kevin Rudd going to a strip club moment where it actually did more to kind of humanise him and make him like, oh, this guy did an e- was an idiot on his 21st. Now, the other thing is that really the way the um, Jewish community reacted to that was what set the tone afterwards. So the Jewish community in, in Sydney really actually rallied around him and said, well, his actions since then have spoken far higher and let's use this as a learning mo- uh, moment. Mm-hmm. And so really that kind of put an end to too much of it. Um, like it suddenly, because of their support, sort of made it a little bit um, less of a political issue, I think. I think that fundamentally. So it was handled well politically by by him and his team. Um but the other thing I would, would say is that by the time this happened, Perrottet had had a very good couple of months. So sort of end of last year and to early this year, he has had a good month, a good a bit of time because he's framed himself around big ideas and as a reformer. And we spoke a little bit earlier about the pokies, but there's some other ideas he's put forward too. And, and so the, the biggest one is uh, in New South Wales, Perrottet has been pushing for, to transfer uh, to transition from stamp duty to land tax. So instead of paying stamp duty, you would pay an ongoing land tax, um, something that many economists push for and we at the McKellen Institute support it. I, I put out a submission backing him in on this. I think this is a, a good thing. Since then, the policy that's actually been put out is a pale imitation of it, but um, 
but he is seen as wanting to pursue those big ideas. Um, whether he is internally capable of doing that is yet to be seen, but he is seen as wanting to get take on those big ideas. And so something like this, which is a sort of a scandal from perhaps the distant past, I don't think is, is knocking... I think people know enough about him now. By the time the scandal came out, they know enough about him that they don't feel like it fundamentally undermined him. Mm. Um, but that being said, I tell you what, there are some people who are not so forgiving and uh, there's plenty of them out there and maybe it's just the in, a, in an optional preferential system in New South Wales, it might be enough to get some uh, some angry people to preference um, Labor or really put, um, put Perrottet last. Well, let's turn to the campaign itself. Uh, which is a bit more of um, an area where I feel more comfortable talking as opposed to pol- policy. But thank you for um, putting up with my stupid questions there for a while, Michael. I do appreciate that. Um, Not at all. The, the leaders' debates. You're having so many leaders' debates. Like I, when I started to research um, the media coverage of the campaign, you had a uh, one on 2GB radio in early February. You and I were just talking before the show. You had one last yesterday afternoon or one last night on Channel 7. There's obviously another one later on. You know, normally... Uh, incumbents kind of use that opportunity to control how many debates are going to happen um, based on, you know, if you're ahead in the polls, the theory is don't have a lot of debates, just have the one, tick that box. That's what happened in the Victorian experience. We had uh, Daniel debated uh, Matt Guy once. It was late, late in the campaign. It was on Sky News. That meant six people watched it. Um, Job done. What's going on in New South Wales? Why so many debates? Who is this favouring? Or are both folks thinking this is good for them? Well, I mean, both folks are thinking it's good for them, which is is why it's happening. I mean, uh, Perrottet is is um, is the biggest asset for his his government, um, and uh, they know this. They're trying to put Perrottet front and centre. Um, you know, one of the things that that is sort of hasn't been a huge issue in the campaign yet, but points to the the kind of issue, the issues with the government is there's seven ministers who are retiring at this election. And we have no idea who the health minister is going to be after the 25th of March. If the coalition win or, you know, if Labor win, they've said who theirs will be, but the the health minister and many others are going too. And so there's that huge amount of uncertainty if you start talking about the team or or where we go. And so really they want this to be about Perrottet. And Perrottet is a good debater. Um, I think sometimes he can come across as a little too um, snarky or or know-it-all in the debates and he's being very careful about that. But he does know his stuff, you know. He's been, he's been a treasurer. He's been a premier. He's well briefed, um, and he's leaning into that. And so they've been pushing it a lot. Um, similarly, but from a different perspective, um, you have Chris Minns. So Chris is also seen as a significant asset. Chris's uh, only challenge, and it's the challenge every every opposition leader has, is um, is really profile, and this is his chance to get out and show who he is and what he's about. And you see that with a lot of, um, you know, he's done some some recent interviews um, with his family. Uh, his wife did a, a sort of long interview with Jordan Baker at the Sydney Morning Herald. Um, he played guitar on uh, with with Kyle and Jackie O on radio. Um, you know, he's, he's trying to show people what he's about, right? And there's not a lot of opportunities to do that except during a campaign, so he's using them. Uh, and so he's similarly in the public debate. Um, he's pushing in to to, um, to get, have as many debates as possible. And so I think we'll see a couple more and there'll be probably a few sort of surprise ones that are, uh, it's certainly happening a lot more. Um, it's a bit head-to-head. And 
But I would say this is also a very surprising thing for those of us who've been watching New South Wales politics for a while because uh, famously uh, the last debate in um, 29, at the 2019 election was a really tough one for the Labor leader, um, uh, Michael Daly at the time. Um, now, Michael Daly, I, I know him. He's, he knows his stuff really well. He's a really clever guy. Um, but in that debate... Uh, both leaders, actually, uh, I think um, Gladys Berejiklian at the time accidentally said there was a toll on a road that wasn't tolled, but he made bigger mistakes and it really undermined the Labor is ready to govern message that he was trying to send across. And that was on the Wednesday of the last campaign. And so many people, many observers thought, well, you know, Labor's not going to take that kind of risk again. You're not, you're not going to expose yourself to the risks of, um, of that. But to, be, to, to Chris's credit, he's not shying away from that. He's, he's not saying, oh, I'm, I'm going to be uh, fearful of mistakes. He's, he's going out and putting himself out there. And I think, um, I think that's probably what's needed right now is people need to know that he's ready to be a leader after 12 years. To be honest, I think Labor people are only just starting to believe that they deserve to be in government. He needs to show that they do. I, I mean, I love it. I mean, I absolutely love it. First of all, I just love I love a contest. I love the fact that you've got two leaders both wanting to do these debates for different reasons. So therefore, they're trying to get something out of something and they have to actually literally meet in the arena and have it out. I think that's a really good thing for democracy. And I think it's just great for, in terms of the theatre of it all. But also, I love what I'm seeing from Chris in that respect in that, yeah, some campaigns are risk adverse and they get so risk adverse, they don't actually leave the house. Um, if you he has to in order for Labor to win, they've got to get out there and they've got to have that conversation with voters. And the fact that Chris is prepared to say, well, you know, I'm going to back myself and I'm going to back my party, I'm going to back our policies, I'm going to back my ability as a, the the chief communicator of this campaign and put myself in that position, you know, in multiple opportunities where it looks like you've had going to have three or four debates across this campaign is fantastic. That's really really good, and I think it just does send a good message to your point to the electorate that I am competent because it speaks to the competency of what his ability can be as a leader, as the Premier of the state. So I think that's really, really good. And I really, uh, I, I want to shout that out. That's fantastic. Mm, I um, couldn't agree more. Can, can we talk, You um, probably next week we'll probably do a debrief of one of the debates in particular. So I'm keen to get a sense from both you and Rosie about how they're going against each other. There was a, a signature moment in the campaign on the weekend. The Labor Party actually launched their campaign Um before we, t- I think you sort of touched on some of the pol- policies that came out of that launch, but I just want to get a sense from you about what you saw from the campaign in terms of the colour and the movement and the structure, the, you know, who were the speakers, what were, they, what were the sort of the creative pieces were put out, what did you see from the campaign launch that's going to tell us about the remaining two weeks of this uh, election campaign? Well, I think this was, um, this was Chris's comfortable as leader of his party. It was the most... Um, it was, to be honest, the most um, sort of, uh, I guess, uh, comfortable is maybe a poor word choice by me, but most comfortable speech. You know, he 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 was there. He knew what he needed to do, and it was it was really a moment where he, alongside Anthony Albanese, who introduced him and endorsed him, that was the that was the moment. It was the, you know, what we 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 you are in the in the Labor leaders of you can be Premier. It was really that sending that message. Um, and I, I thought that it's also nice um, as someone who is a strong believer in progressive politics to see um, 
the the kind of labor brand being not tarnished as it was so for so long in new south wales people have been worried about that and this was pride you know albanese it was it was there were the former premiers were there it was um it was getting out with a bit of pride and so i thought that um you know, when, when people can be proud of what they're, they're doing, you need to be able to do that before you can win votes. And um, that's what Chris's, Chris's election was, uh, uh, speech was about, being ready for government. And the other thing I'd say, and I, I know I hark back to policy, but it's really the thing that, that fascinates me in these contests. But Chris announced um, that, that, uh, that a Labor government would, would cover hex costs for um, nurses and other health workers. And that is a, you know, it's, it's, it hasn't been made a political problem in that um, no one's blaming anyone for the shortage, but there is a shortage. We have, we have major shortages in New South Wales. People see it. The wait times are longer. It's hard to get to a doctor. So more people go into hospital, which is clogging it up even further. Uh, people are, are resigning in stress. And um, I think people are sort of calling out for a solution. So it's great to see I think he kind of hit a hot button issue in a really sensible way. I doubt it'll get huge play in the in the, the media coverage because it's not controversial. But it's I think it'll again it's sending that message that um, he knows what the problem is and he's ready to solve it. The tone of the um, launch I thought was great. Um, and to your point, yeah, I mean it's you know in order to energise your base, particularly in the way that we campaign these days, where it's such an important resource is to mobilise not just party members but people who support the party to go out there and have conversations with their neighbours. I thought that that was a great tone in the way that was presented not just from Chris but also from Anthony Albanese as well. Pretty great to have an asset that, that is now the Prime Minister of Australia in your back pocket just to reel out beforehand as well, which I thought was really, really good. Um, can we uh, – let's let's now talk about how, how, to, how to win this thing. Um, uh, the, the Libs – the, sorry, I should say the coalition currently hold 46 seats to Labor's 38. There are nine on the crossbench. Just walk us through um, how many seats Labor need to form government and then let's talk about some of those uh, seats. I will say to our listeners, we're probably going to do a bonus episode in the final week where we go through the path to victory for Labor and unpack each of those seats. Um, but let's just sort of do a bit of a, a, a top-line snapshot of um, how does Labor um, actually get themselves in the hunt and then what do they need to, get, need to do to get over the line? Well, there's 93 seats in the New South Wales Parliament, so you need to be able to get to, uh, what's that, 40, 46, right? Um, uh, sorry, 47 to be able to form a majority government. Um, so that puts Labor needing to win... Um, nine seats but there is uh it, it sort of depends and people have slightly different takes based on there being a few there's a new seat in in leppington that is a notionally labor seat and there's also seats labor won in by-elections so you know sometimes you'll see people talk about slightly different numbers i just should flag that um but the, what's what's interesting is also that you do have um you know there are three Greens members, all of which are likely to be um, returned. There is a little bit of talk that uh, Jamie Parker and Balmain could lose, given he's retiring. Um, so, so the Greens could lose Balmain, but that's probably unlikely. Um, Big margin, ten percent there versus Labor. Yeah, and and this is really what you see. I mean, there's a few seats that are off the bat, based on current polling, 
um, will likely fall to Labor. Um, the, the path to victory for the coalition is really hard and that's what gives, I think, Labor people some confidence. But at the same time, Labor's doesn't have an easy path either. Um, in fact, uh, you start to get to um, some seats, the margins rise very quickly is what I'm trying to say. Mm. So you, you, you really start to look at seats where to get a majority government where Labor needs 6 to 9% swings. And in some of those, and those ones are fundamentally going to rely on some local issues to be able to deal with that. And so we're going to see an election campaign, I think, that's, um, that Labor's going to pick up seats. Um, I think the, the toss-up is probably at the moment, b- barring some big changes in the next couple of weeks, probably uh, we're looking at Labor picking up um, certainly enough seats to be able to form a minority government. Um, what, but what, what number is that? Uh, what, how many seats does Labor need to win to, to get themselves into that position to form a minority government? Well, it, it probably depends. You're probably looking at least three. So there's a three Greens, but there's also um, there is a Labor, well, um, there is Greg Piper in Lake Macquarie, who, which is traditionally a Labor seat. He holds it as an independent. Um, the assumption, well, you know, you can never assume these things, but the hope would be that um, he would support Labor, uh, a government. Um, you then have Alex Greenwich. Alex Greenwich is the independent member for Sydney, um, very strongly backed by Clover Moore. He is will also win his seat. Um, he, he's, interestingly, quite a progressive uh, guy, but he's also um, done a lot with uh, the coalition government and been able to get things up. So he's no-one's taking him for granted either. Mm. And then you have the shooters, fishers and farmers, um, which currently hold, uh, they hold three seats. And so... Um, or, or in, in different ways as, um, across Murray, Barwon and Orange, and they may or may not return in full uh, their delegation. But um, what I would suggest people think to is the, the, the party that has the most seats is more likely to be able to win a minority government. So while Labor's path might be, you know, technically the coalition are in minority government now, by the way. What's, what's not co- often talked about is that they lost a few... Liberals through scandals, the the very popular MP for Kayama, uh, Gareth Ward, is being investigated um, by the Child Sex Crimes Unit. He's running again. Um, he's an, as an independent this time, um, but he would probably be a you know he'd almost certainly be voting for the Liberals uh, for the coalition for supply. Um, uh, but he's um, so the coalition are in minority government at the moment. And that's why I think, uh, actually, I'm not too afraid of minority governments. I think that they can work. Mm. Um, But fundamentally, you'll probably need to see a majority. So if that's the case, let's say Labor can pick up three, four seats, let's say four, um, from the coalition, that's 42 each. So five seats becomes the kind of number where you get to say you're the... And I say this also because there'll be some teals running um, we're not sure whether they will turn out like in the federal campaign or whether it'll be more like the Victorian campaign where they didn't pick up seats. Um, there's a, a couple, though, that are certainly very interesting contests that you would want to look at, uh, particularly, and they're all in Liberal heartland seats. 
again, for them, it's going to be far easier. It's sort of hard for them to make a call on this. It's going to be far easier for them to back in a change of government if they get a majority of, if, if they have more seats. The coalition's view is that if they, I think if they have more seats, conversely, so 40, let's say they have 43, I, I think they could probably make up, they, they might be able to make up uh, and form their own minority government. Um, say that it's not a mandate for change, that Labor doesn't have enough seats. Um, you know, it's a bit of a who knows, but um, Labor certainly has enough, I think, to get, uh, I think they've got enough uh, at the moment to get to that more seats, the four seats you need. And I think the question is, though, whether they can form a government in their own right. And um, it's not impossible, There's, but there's some big swings that are needed in some seats. That's interesting. So, I mean, 42 is a good number for Labor to work towards. Obviously, if you're the Tories, by the sounds of what you're saying there, Michael, 43 is a number that they'd probably want to be working towards. Um, if we were, I mean, seats like East Hills, which these are the marginal seats that are held by the, the Conservatives at the moment. East Hills, they hold that by 0.1% uh, when the Lindsay's a candidate. Penrith, Stuart Ayres holds it by 06 Goulburn, 3.1%. Is that, I mean, I don't hear this seat being talked about. Um, it seems to be all the seats out in the western suburbs that, that Labor's really kind of trying to go after, like Holsworthy, um, um, maybe Parramatta, Riverstone. What 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 are the what are the what ones that you think will just topple? I shouldn't say just topple. It's not like you wave a magic wand and all of a sudden <laughs> seats fall into the Labor pile. It's not as easy as that. But what are the seats that you think if Labor's going to win or certainly be in the hunt? What are the seats that they need to be jagging early in the count on election night? Oh well, you need to be knocking off very quickly East Hills and Penrith, um, both sort of Western Sydney seats. Um, then the next lot really is look at Winston Hills, um, Holsworthy, Riverston, Parramatta. The major- most of them are in Western Sydney too, I think. So so um, there, and they're all about six percent. And so if you are hitting them, that's when I think there's going to be a lot of confidence and celebration from the Labor side. Before them, you're going to have a lot of nervousness. Um, So they're probably the ones I'd reach out for. And, you know, it's true that they are Sydney, uh, Western Sydney-based, like you said. Um, Upper Hunter is the second most marginal seat the Coalition have. It's a national seat. It's on 0.5%. So it's very close. But Labor did contest in a by-election there not long ago, about a bit over a year ago. Um, It's not, you know, it's outside of these Sydney seats. They might not necessarily swing as heavily as in Sydney. Um, They don't have the same level of movement of uh, people moving between areas as um, uh, city seats. Um, And they don't have the same sort of border and other trends um, changes. There has been a redistribution since the last election campaign, so people should know that. Um, and likewise, I throw in Goulburn. So Goulburn, um, the reason why I'm, I laughed when you said Goulburn mm. is because Goulburn is certainly, I think, winnable for Labor. 3.1. Uh, lot. It's a, and you know what? If they win Goulburn, it just means that they don't have to win some of these seats that are on sort of 6.5%, 7% to get there. Um but Goulburn is also, uh, you know, I just, uh, again, I, I've followed this for so long that I've seen Goulburn on the list of seats that Labor's going to win for so many election campaigns now and they never quite get there that it's almost it's almost like a, a bit of a joke. Uh, you know, at what point 
I, I don't think you can rely on it is really what I'm saying. Um, and uh, the, the sort of latest polling is that that area is potentially, um, I guess, a um, they're not heavily endorsing either major party. They're, they're, they're angry at, for a lot of reasons, um, but we'll see. And then the other one that falls into this sort of category of um, seats that have low margins but that are outside of Sydney and might be tough to get is the Tweed. So Tweed is on 5%, so it's also technically easier than, let's say, Winston Hills, Holsworthy, Riverston, Parramatta. But it's um, it's on the border up near Queensland. It's uh, it's well outside. You have a retiring local member um, and... Uh, but but five percent is a big big swing. You're going to have a struggle, I think, in in the tweed. Uh, so wh- whether those um, whether those seats fall, I think um, I, I don't think Labor can rely on them. But they're certainly if they're falling, oh look, the it's going to become a lot easier. But it's really those those bulk ones in Western Sydney. Um, if I swing up the the it'd be great to sort of uh, almost if people reading this almost need a pendulum in front of them. But if you go from sort of the Winston Hills, Holsworthy, Riverston, Parramatta, they're all between 5.7 and 6.5%. The next ones along are Oatley, which is in South Sydney, Ride uh, and Camden, Camden and Ride. And they go from 6.8 to 8.9%. And that's really about the extent to which I think, I think it would be a, a challenge to be going higher than that for Labor in any of those other seats where you start getting into 10, 12% swings. Uh, and so there, if any of them fall early in the night, I think there'll be that's going to be an indication too. But I think that's where it's going to start being, they're going to be the next sort of set of marginal seats. Um, and... Um, and I think that'll make the determination. So as you can see, the ones that are mostly being relied on to win there are Western Sydney. Yeah. It's something like, you know. We'll, um, we'll uh, no doubt do a, a much more deeper dive on all of those seats uh, in the final week, um, which is always a fun episode that tends to go for six or seven days because there's so many seats <laughs> to cover. Um, incidentally, though, one of the most uh, downloaded episodes we've ever done, which is the federal election one, where we literally went around every, nearly <laughs> or 176 seats across the country with David Fanning and a whole bunch of other different people. I'm going to be leaning heavily on you and Rosie for that episode. Um, so uh, <laughs> get ready to get on the phones and find out what's going on at local level for those campaigns. We're out of time, um, so I'm going to skip over some of the things I did want to talk about, we, but we can pick it up next week, like things like op- optional preferential voting, what how that's going to play out, and also a lot of the research and polling that we're seeing coming out. Let's spend time talking about that next week. Before we wrap up, I want to get your sense on how the media are behaving in the campaign so far. Um, look, and I wonder if it's a different vibe in New South Wales state politics. Certainly when we've done this uh, for the Victorian and the federal campaign coverage, you know, we that we were looking at the media and observing it and just wanted to hold a bit of a spotlight up to the people who think they're holding a spotlight up to the politicians in saying that your coverage was shithouse, you don't know what you're talking about, it's poor and you're a bunch of Tories. Um, is it like that in New South Wales? I know historically we've sort of seen the front pages of the Daily Telegraph over previous election campaigns and even outside of cycles it's been just absolutely appalling coverage of getting stuck into the Labor Party. Mm-hmm. Uh, just give us a bit of a sense of what you're seeing from the two major dailies and also the TVs. How are they behaving in this election campaign? Well, I mean, the dailies, the dailies tend to, the papers tend to sort of 
uh, lead a lot of the kind of, especially the more maybe controversial coverage. I think the TVs play it pretty, pretty straight bat in, in most most cases. Um, again, this is so interesting because you've, you've got the same kind of switching dynamic that we were talking about at the beginning of the episode where um, the Sydney Morning Herald has been so heavy on, on pokies that they've been quite critical of they want Chris to go further, uh, Chris and Labor to go further. Um, and so whenever it comes to issues like that, they're, they're not, they're pretty strong in their position. Mm. Um, but because they've been leading so much of the agenda in that, you have a, a different dynamic coming from the Daily Telegraph where I think they're actually being a lot more, you know, they're running a little bit for either side um, and they're, they're not running that. Now, that might change in the next couple of weeks as we really get into the business end, but I'd say that they're not leading their coverage in the same way that they've done in some other campaigns. Um, that being said, I've got to say that there's a, a very interesting article and I've got to say it's the worst one I've seen so far on the election campaign, if I can call it out, but it's 15 things you didn't know about Chris Minns on, uh, on um, the Daily Telegraph, which is just a list of 15 dot points uh, all listing something negative they can find about Chris Minns. And I thought it was, uh, you know, if ever there was going to be something that indicates that maybe some uh, old habits die hard, this is it. It's basically a Tory listicle by the sound of it. It is a listicle. It's BuzzFeed in uh, it's BuzzFeed in the telly. Um, uh, but for 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 people who are who are Labor skeptics, so um, but but realistically, I think that the you know there'll always be some challenges. I don't think the the Telegraph are running the big. I think that's an interesting story at the moment. Is that they're not running the big campaign everyone thinks they would, um, and I think Chris and Labor know that the telly is what's read in those Western Sydney seats we just went through. And they are very being very careful to understand um, that it's worth listening to them and, uh, and not to, to, uh, to, um, un- uh, to excessively antagonise, which is a very different dynamic where, you know, once everyone says, oh, we're, you know, at the federal campaign, it was sort of turned into a bit of a joke at one point. And so, um, you know, look, there's still some opinions that, That'll happen here, but it hasn't happened yet. Um, two things on that, two questions. Uh, the first one is, uh, what, I think one of the takeaways that we have in Victoria, the Herald Sun held an important place in the political conversation for many, many years, decades. Uh, and it really, they were in our heads. When I say our, I mean Labor's heads, right? Um, sometimes you sort of thought that an election could be made or broken from a front page or a series of front pages from the Herald Sun. Over the last, oh, you know, I mean, I mean, obviously Labor's been in government now, well, it seems like forever. The Herald Sun have been even more relentless in their attack of the Labor of Labor governments and, and personalities within the Labor governments and it hasn't had any impact. And I think we're coming to the view that no one's reading the damn paper anymore and if they are, they're getting it for, for you know, the footy coverage um, and the crossword. Um do you think that the Daily Telegraph has the same reach as it once had into the households that shape vote uh, 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 where elections can be won or lost? That's my first question. So, certainly not. It does not have the reach it once did. Um, but it is still influential in, in, in the debate. Um, and uh, fundamentally, I mean while you have lots of these other outlets, you know, social media and, and online outlets are taking off and um, 
doing very well and becoming more influential themselves. Um, there is no other, no one's come to replace the scale of the broadsheets or the, or the, tele, the, the Telegraph and the Sydney Morning Herald, um, not broadsheets anymore, um, but uh, they, are, they are still the biggest. And um, they also do have, uh, you know, we have the, a lot of media consolidation. Um, you know, there's links between Channel 9 and um, the Sydney Morning Herald and, and so on. Um, but we still have a lot of people in Western Sydney listening to 2GB, um, 2GB uh, taking a lot of the, uh, uh, I guess, uh, material that first publishes in the Telegraph. You still have a kind of very, um, it's it's a little bit populist, it's a little bit um, common sensey, you know, a uh, little bit, let's just, um, you know, fearful of change. Uh, but fundamentally, like, my, my view on these things is that Labor is, as the party representing change and reform is always going to be scrutinised more. And you can get really upset about that, which don't worry, I have. I've spent many years upset about it, right? But, yeah, well, if you're, if you're running for government and promising you're not going to do anything, which is what mo- lots of conservative governments do, not all, but, you know, like I said, Perite's said a couple of things. But if you're saying you're not going to do anything, well, there's not as much to scrutinise, is there? You're not really afraid of them. Um, but if you're saying you are going to do things, well, you need to justify them and and so on. And so I think Labor has a higher bar that they have to hurdle. Um, I'm glad that bar is is um, not becoming as rigid and just held by the telly. It's being held by, you know, The Guardian and all these other, you know, podcasts that are influencing debates and all sorts of things. So um, that kind of, uh, that's changing. But I, I don't, so I don't think they've got as much sway as they once did, but uh you know, we've just read through the list of seats, Western Sydney seats. These are uh, there is a there is a media cohort there that's still very influential. The other thing I was thinking about, and I will be interesting to see if this holds up to your point about the uh, the coverage from the the Daily Telegraph, or more broadly from news. They don't like to back losers, and we see that both in the UK, in the United States, and in Australia, where they've got heavily heavy influence in the in the media market. Uh, and we saw it in the federal campaign um, in the last week or so. They started to tone down the rhetoric against Albanese because I think they thought uh, the writing's on the wall here. I think Labor's going to get up and we don't want to be – because they want to be able to say the next day on Monday or, you know, sun, Sunday coverage. We told you so. We called it, you know. We shaped the, the narrative of who wins government. Um, I wonder if they're thinking – are they having a, are they pulling their punches because they think maybe the Labor is a good chance of winning this election or is it a different strategy? I don't know. What do you think? Uh well, I mean, maybe, but uh, I mean, I remember when they ran the front page "Let's Save Albo" um, campaign before he was leader, and when he was running against, you know, the Greens were running against him in in Greenland. Like the 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 um, Telegraph haven't, uh, you know, they, they they do surprise us sometimes. I think um, so. I mean, Perrottet is giving a lot of has has his early campaign lent very heavily into a narrative that was being pushed by the Sydney Morning Herald. That was about pokies. It was about, and he was trying to tone down his conservativeness as was perceived at the time. You, you made the point earlier about he was, uh, you know, people were, were kind of fearful of this and he maybe took it into account. Yeah. Yeah. You know, he's been trying to tone it down a little bit. Uh, and, and Mins is trying to be the safe pair of hands. 
So he's not doing, um, you know, m- more radical things that are going to, that, you know, might uh, appeal to, to some of us who want, who always want more. Um, but he's, uh, to that end, I think the telly are finding him not, they're not um, too upset. Mm. Um, and I think they're also not heavily invested in, in Perite because he hasn't given them a reason to invest in him either. Well, it'll be fascinating to watch this all unpack over the remaining 17 days. Um, we're at time. Uh, Michael, we uh, we really appreciate your time. You did a lot of heavy lifting today. So, Rosie, if you're listening, you're okay. going to be taking all the questions next week. Um, uh, before we do, before I say cheerio to you, um, just a reminder to folks in New South Wales, if you do want to get involved um, in the campaign and volunteer your time, uh, go to www.NewSouthWalesLabor. So it's nswlabor.org.au. Uh, there's a volunteer page there where it lists uh, all the places, local campaigns, we can phone bank or door knock. Um, and if you're outside the state, um, I think you can donate. I'm assuming you can take donations from outside of, because I know you've got weird electoral funding laws there. Oh, you're looking at me for, that's that's not my my, my thing, but, uh, but give, give the money make sure you read those rules carefully because i got to say enough people get caught up on them. Uh, there are really strict campaign rules. There is public funding Um but don't worry, if you're, if you're interested in doing it, they'll have the rules written there for you. So Indeed. So if you just want to help out and you're outside of the state, please go to that page. But also if you are local, uh, make sure you use your voice because uh, with 17 days to go, um, there's nothing more important than actually having direct conversation with voters on the phones and on the doors and shifting them into the, uh, the Labor column as uh, we get closer and closer to pre-poll as well. Um, Michael, once again, thank you for your time today. Really appreciate it. And looking forward to having a chat with you and Rosie uh, for our show uh, next week. Thank you very much for having me. Um, It's going to be an exciting couple of weeks. Thanks for listening to Socially Democratic. Did you like the podcast? Hit the follow or subscribe button and be sure to leave a review on Apple Podcast or Podchaser. And to get all the latest on Socially Democratic, follow Dunstreet on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter and LinkedIn. And we'll see you next Friday. Socially Democratic was brought to you by Morris Blackburn Lawyers. Morris Blackburn Lawyers have spent more than a century paving the hard path to justice for everyday Australians. They've helped over 500,000 Australians turn their situation around and they know how the system works. Their experience and skills means you'll get the best results possible. Find out more on their website, morrisblackburn.com.au. Morris Blackburn, experience you can count on. Socially Democratic was brought to you by SwiftFox. Every moment on a campaign matters. You need the tools that you can trust, lists that are up to date, phone banks that can change minds, emails that drive donations, events that will energise the community online and offline, and text blasts that distill your message perfectly. SwiftFox CRM is made for campaigners by campaigners. To find out more, go to swiftfoxcrm.com to win your next campaign.